Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want you to turn to the book of Jude toward the end of the New Testament, and then we're going to back up uh, to the book of Hebrews today as we continue looking at a strategic grasp of the Bible. And my goal in this message and the next one is to help you to understand some boundaries and some principles for studying the Word of God. There are some rules, if you will, that help you in your personal Bible study and in your personal looking and reading of the Scripture. There are some rules that you need to follow to make sure that you are accurately handling the Word of God. Now, we've got a lot before us today. And so uh, I'm going to try to give it to you as concisely as I can. And then tonight in the message, we'll be talking further about some of the key things that you need to understand in studying the Scriptures. Because what I want to help you to do is I want to help you wherever you are in your Christian life. If you're a new Christian, if you're a seasoned saint, I want to help you to go deeper in your personal Bible study, to be personally enriched in your time in the Word of God. The reason that there are rules for Bible interpretation is the same reason that you want somebody to be dogmatic who is your pharmacist. You don't want your pharmacist to say, well, I know what the doctor prescribed, but I think the ingredient should be a little different. You want it as prescribed. You want to take the medicine as prescribed. You want the mixture to be as prescribed. You need to know how the drugs interact with each other. I want a dogmatic pharmacist. My dad was a pharmacist. He was a dogmatic pharmacist. He didn't let people come into the counter and say, now I want you to fill it this way. He said, this is the way it's written. This is the way it's going to be filled. I want a dogmatic pilot. You know, when you leave Albany, you're always number one for takeoff. But I want to make sure I know where I'm going. And I want the pilot to know. I don't want him to get up and say, well, we're going to get up here and wing it. I want him to have some confidence that he knows how to listen to the tower and get me to where I'm supposed to be. Uh, One of my favorite uh, stories, as I was preparing this, I was reminded of a story of Ben Hogan, who was one of the great golfers of all time. And and, uh, Ben Hogan had a shot in a particular tournament, and he asked his caddy, he said, how far is it to the pin? And the caddy said, 151-152. And Hogan turned around to him and said, which one is it? He wanted the exact number. He didn't want to guess. He wanted to know it. And when you and I come to the Bible, we need to know some exact principles that help us to study the Word of God. And so I want us to look at several things this morning. We'll see how far we can get. First of all, the Bible is our singular guide and authority for faith. Everything that we teach, everything that we believe needs to be verified by the scriptures. This is the first and foremost principle. Because if we fail here, we fail in every other area. If the Bible is not the final authority, then we're in trouble because then anything and everything can be the final authority or have authority over the scriptures. The scriptures have final authority. Here's a, th- here's a statement that you can understand. If it's new, it's not true. 
If you ever hear somebody say, I discovered something in the Bible and I can't find it in a commentary anywhere. I can't find it in church history anywhere. This is new thought I've got. I promise you, he didn't get it from the scriptures. Because the Holy Spirit does not reveal that which is inconsistent with the word of God. So if it's new, it's not true. By the way, who in their right mind thinks that after 2,000 years of Christian history, they're the first person to think of something? I mean, you've got to ask yourself the question, how come God made you the first person to think of that? So it's got to be the authority, the final authority. Jude verse 3. Jude verse 3. And while we're looking at Jude verse 3, I want you to see some phrases in here. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Once for all handed down to the saints. Now, sometimes you'll hear a preacher say it's in the canon of Scripture. The word canon means the ruling measure or the rod of measurement. It is a measuring rod. It is is the criteria by which books were measured to see if they would fit into the Scripture, if they were consistent with the Scripture. That's why you have books like the Gospel of Thomas, which is not included. That's why you have the Gospel of Barnabas, which is not included, because those books under the test of canon and of what was consistent in the Scripture did not measure up and hold up to the standards of the other books of the scripture. The faith once for all delivered means it's not my faith, it's not your faith. It's the faith that God delivered to us and revealed to us. Once for all, no need for addition. No need for amplification. No need for retractions delivered. The Greek participle delivered means it has been completed and stands complete. So when God finished the book, when the book of Revelation was written, it was the closing of the canon, if you will. It was the completed revelation, nothing to be added to it. Why is that important? Because the Bible is the only objective part of our faith. Everything else is subjective. Your experiences are subjective. The Bible is the only objective part. Experiences can be elusive. They can be subjective. And by the way, not all experiences are Christian experiences. The devil is an imposter. We know that from the plagues of Egypt. And every time Moses did something, the the priest of the false gods would imitate. The devil will imitate. He is an imposter. There are evidences of healings, of speaking in tongues, of experiences, of, of the sick being healed among cults and false religions. Because the devil can imitate. He can be an imposter. So the standard of measurement is not my experience. The standard of measurement is what God has said. Just because I've had an experience doesn't make it a Christian experience. I'm not discounting experiences, but the danger is when we begin to say that my experience has validity over the Word of God, and then we begin to talk to people that way, and we say to them, God healed me, he's going to heal you. God brought my prodigal home because we got together as a group and prayed. So God's going to bring your prodigal home if you get together and pray. God delivered me from this, so God's going to deliver you from this. He may or he may not. It doesn't change the fact that he's sovereign and he's still God. 
You, you see, sound doctrine is not based on the apostles' experiences. Sound doctrine is based on the apostles' teachings. Not what they did, but what they taught. So we don't gain our doctrine from the book of Acts. We gain our doctrines from the epistles, the writings of John and of Peter and of Paul. Why? Because they are the objective parts. Here's the danger. The danger is if I make my experience the rule of law, the final authority, I will end up with deductive doctrines. I didn't say deceptive doctrines. I said deductive doctrines. Here's what I mean by deductive doctrines. A deductive doctrine is making an assumption based on your experience that that holds true with everybody else. For instance, in the area of spiritual gifts, people deduce because of personality profiles that certain gifts belong to certain people with certain personalities. In other words, if you have this gift, you have a certain personality. First thing is God never taught us about personality types. There's no high A, high D, high I, high S, high C. There's no beaver. There's no, there's no wolf. There's no lion. There's no rabbit. There's, there's all of those personalities. They're fine, but it is deductive doctrine and it can be deceptive and confusing. If you say this gift always has this personality style, I'll give you a, for instance, a, for instance is me. My primary spiritual gift, which I believe everybody has all the spiritual gifts, but, but there's a primary one that you operate with. My primary spiritual gift is that of prophet. Now, because of that, people assume that the prophet has a high A, type D, strong will personality. But I can tell you that as a person who spent many, many hours with Vance Havner, his personality and mine were the exact opposite. But his spiritual gift was prophet. It would be wrong to say that everybody with the spiritual gift of prophet is a person who has a personality just like mine. First of all, we'd all drive each other crazy. It is also wrong to assume that people that have the gift of mercy cry over everything. They may be very strong-willed people, but God has gifted them with the gift of mercy and with great compassion. So you don't do deductive reasoning. You don't assume that God acts like us or that God thinks like us. So here's the rule. Here's the rule for point number one. Don't say more than the Bible says. Just don't say more than the Bible says. John Trapp, the Puritan, said, Where the Scripture has no tongue, we must have no ears. Don't say any more than what the Bible says. Don't deduce or imply or teach as authoritative. Now, you can say, my opinion is, but that's your opinion. That's your experience. That's not the authoritative word of God. Secondly, the primary theme of the Bible is redemption. Let me just read a verse to you. 2 Timothy three fifteen. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So we need to start where the Bible starts. The Bible starts and ends with the story of God's redemptive plan for mankind. Now here's the danger. The danger is we can get off on things that we are very interested in. Our 
pet subjects in our pet areas. In fact, I, if you have a Bible that you've used for a long time, I can tell you where you land when you look at the Bible by how dirty and worn the pages are in some sections and not in others. In fact, Lamentations is probably still stuck together in your Bible. But you've worn out Psalms and the Gospel of John and maybe 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. I mean, you've worn out those books and you can get focused on those things that are really your interest, that pique your interest, that stir your imagination. That's why some people, all they want to do is read on prophecy. That's why some people, all they want to do is read on the glory of God. That's why it is important that we understand that the primary theme of the Bible is redemption. The primary theme of the Bible is not marriage. It's not relationships. It's not child rearing. It's not how you do your business. It's not anything about us. The primary theme of scripture is about what God did for us in Christ. That, that, that's one reason why my favorite way of preaching is expository preaching, because I can't take a verse and build a sermon on it without looking at it in the context of the chapter of the book and of the whole Bible. Because when you go through expository preaching, when you preach through a book of the Bible, you cannot ignore the verses that you are uncomfortable with. You have to speak to them. You have to dig and find out what they say. And so when you look at the Bible, always look at it through the grid of the subject of redemption. Number three, God's revelation is progressive. It is progressive. You see, God accommodates himself to man. God accommodates himself to the apprehension of man. God does not reveal more than we can handle. The infinite God has revealed to finite man that which finite man can understand. And so when God speaks, it is progressive. He revealed himself in the Old Testament. But that was not his final revelation. His final and complete revelation was in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, the types, the images, the sacrifices, all pointed to Messiah who would be the fulfillment of that. So when you read about the sacrifices, when you read about the festivals and the feast in the Old Testament, they're not just there because God thought up this weird thing where they come and pour water or they light lamps or they do this or that. God was pointing to something that was an image, a picture or a symbol of what would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the Passover lamb. He was the once for all sacrifice. That's why the sacrificial system isn't needed anymore because Christ was the fulfillment of all the things said about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, if you will, is the ABCs of your faith. It's the ABCs. It's it's God giving the law. It's God giving the covenant. It's God revealing himself in a pillar of fire and in a pillar of cloud. It is God speaking to man. It is the spirit coming on man at times. You will read in times it says that the spirit of God came on that person. But the spirit of God did not indwell in man until after Christ had ascended and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And so that's the ABCs. The New Testament, that's the X, Y, Z's. That's the completion. Jesus talked about the fullness of time. Paul talked about the fullness of time, that things happened in the fullness 
of time. So when you see the New Testament, it completes what is pictured in the Old Testament. You get a a snapshot there, you get the complete view in the New Testament. Now turn, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to race through a couple of things in Hebrews. And as I said to our prayer partners this morning, uh, for those of you that have to fill in every blank, you're going to be real uptight this morning. But it's okay. If you just write down the reference, you'll get the point. You may not get all the point down, but if you write down the reference, you'll get the point. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. And I'm going to show you how God has... The book of Hebrews is a great book for illustrating how God's revelation is progressive. Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Now, there's some special things in the book of Hebrews that are revealed to us, and it's a complicated book, but here's one of them. The word better, B-E-T-T-E-R, is used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. So, Hebrews says there is a better. It's better than the old, better than than the law. It, It is better because it's revealed in Christ. Here's what he says. He says, first of all, Christ is better than the angels. Hebrews chapter one and verse four. He's better than the angels. He brought a better hope. Hebrews chapter nine, seven and verse 19. He's the mediator of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter eight and verse six, because of the better promises. Now, this won't come up on the screen, but just let me give you the word perfect. The word perfect is found 14 times in the book of Hebrews. So Christ is better and Christ is perfect. Why is that important? Because the Levitical priesthood was not the perfect priesthood, but Jesus is the great high priest. Because the law was not perfect, but Christ fulfilled the law. Because the blood of animal sacrifices was not sufficient, but Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. Because he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. So progressive revelation is moving from the law to grace. It is moving, if you will, and this is the easiest way to explain it. It's moving from the Old Testament temporary system that man could understand to the full revelation of Jesus Christ who came and walked this earth as the God-man. All right? Now, there's another term. Eternal is a key term in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews. When you're studying the Bible, you always want to look for key words. And those are words that are repeated over and over again, which means I'm not talking about the word and or the. But I'm talking about significant words that pop out to you and say, Oh, he keeps repeating that word. Why does he keep repeating that word? And so you look at it and you trace why those key words are important to the writer of the particular book you're studying. Christ is the author of eternal salvation, Hebrews 5, 9. Through his death, he obtained eternal redemption, Hebrews 9, 12, which there in itself is a statement about eternal security. He shares with believers the promise of eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9.15. His throne is forever, Hebrews 1.8. He is priest forever, Hebrews 5.6 and other verses. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. So 
Progressive revelation does not mean that God has extra biblical or beyond scripture revelation, nor does it mean that man is evolving or God is evolving. God's the same. It means that the final revelation of God was in the New Testament. God had intimate fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was no break in their fellowship. It was broken by sin. And so when the world fell and man fell and everything had to be redeemed, God set in motion a plan that would find its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he is the fulfillment of the word of God and of all prophecies related to Messiah. What's changed is not God. What's changed is the extent to which God revealed himself. And so everything in the Old Testament is interpreted in light of the new. Now, this is important because you do not interpret the new in light of the old. You don't make the old have authority over the new. The old sits under the authority of the new as an, and is interpreted by the New Testament. So when I read something in the Old Testament, I need to see that it is valid because it deals with things, but it deals in shadows, in symbols, in pictures. I am not under the ceremonial laws. I am not under the dietary laws. Praise God, I can eat barbecue pork. I mean, aren't you glad you're not under ceremonial law? I mean, you can go eat ribs and not feel guilty about it and wonder if you have to Get on your knees and confess it. I mean, it's just wonderful. You can eat ham. I had bacon last night. It was wonderful. Praise to the pig who gave his life for me. <laughs> we are not under those laws. They are not binding on us because we don't sacrifice animals anymore. We can eat things that were not kosher in the Old Testament because Paul says, and the New Testament reveals, that those laws are not binding on us today. What's valid for us is not the forms, but the theology behind the forms. What is valid is not the forms, but the theology behind the forms. We don't offer sacrifices, but we understand that a sacrifice was required that God had to send his son to be the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice for our sin so that we could have eternal life. So the forms are not what's important to us. It's the truth behind the forms. And the New Testament fulfills the old. This is why this is important. Because the curses of the Old Testament do not apply to us today. I have heard preachers say, well-intentioned, you know, the reason that they are having problems in their family, and you've heard this, the reason they are having problems in their family is because God is visiting the sins on the third and fourth generation. And they go back and they grab a passage out of the Old Testament and say, see, that's it. God's visiting. In other words, I can't do anything about it. The grace of God can't deliver me from it. The grace of God can't set me free. I'm under a curse because of something my great-grandfather did. The New Testament does not teach that. Nor does the New Testament teach that prosperity is a sign of God's blessings. That's a common 21st century teaching, but it's not a teaching 
of the scriptures. And I'm not cursed because of the sins of my fathers. So if it's not repeated and reinforced, if it's not repeated and reinforced in the New Testament, it probably doesn't apply to you. So you run the Old Testament through the filter of the New. Number four, the Bible gives us a picture. Don't focus on the frame. The Bible gives us a picture. Don't focus on the frame. Now, I'm a big fan of Ken Jenkins' photography. And I've got, uh, my wife says we have enough. I'm not sure yet. Uh, But I've got some hanging in my study. I've got some hanging in my office. I've got some, uh, I've just got, I've just got, Ken Jenkins pictures. I got a lot of them. I got the one of the wolf jumping over the frozen creek right above my desk where I do my studying. Now, when I look up at that picture, I don't start going, man, what a frame. That is an incredible frame. Just look at that frame. It's made out of wood. It's two inches wide. It's got grooves cut into it. I don't even notice the frame because I'm focused on the picture. Now, here's the principle. God revealed himself. That's the picture. The frame is the time and the location in which he revealed himself. It frames it in. He revealed himself to a certain people at a certain time in a certain place. And so the, the, the frame only makes us ask the question, Who was he speaking to at the moment? Who was he talking to at the moment? You see, I I can read about Abraham and know that I need to have the faith of Abraham, but I don't need to dress like Abraham. I don't need to go take a journey through the desert like Abraham did, but I do need to learn the principles of what, what Abraham learned in his walk of faith. So I'm not to read the words and then put my definitions on them. My 21st century definitions, I need to know the original audience. Because the Old Testament dealt a lot with very specific guidelines, how you do this, how you do this, how you do this. The New Testament deals with who you are in Christ, what God has saved you to be. For instance, in the Old Testament, there are three basic ways that the Jewish people were taught to pray. They were taught to pray kneeling down, They were taught to pray lying on their face, prostrate before the Lord, and they were taught to pray lifting up holy hands. Now, those instructions, there's only one time in the New Testament where it says we are to lift up holy hands. Those instructions were for them. The New Testament says pray without ceasing. Jesus said when you pray, don't make a show of how you're praying, the method in which you're praying. Go into your closet and pray in secret and God will hear you. So praying, Jesus teaches us, is not to be seen by men. Those forms are not bad. Sometimes I kneel when I pray. Sometimes I lift up my hands when I pray. Sometimes I lay on the floor when I'm praying. But it's not the form. It's the heart that God is looking for. So don't get caught up in the frame. Oh, I'm not really praying if I don't clasp my hands, fold my hands like this. That's fine, but you can pray without doing that. I don't, I don't pray if I don't do certain things. You pray by talking to the Lord. That's how you pray. You can do it walking around. You can do it driving a car. You ought to be praying. There are nuts out there on the road. When Jesus said pray without ceasing, he was thinking about people talking on their cell phone and going through a yellow light at the same time. That's exactly who he was thinking about. That's my supposition anyway. 
Number five, scripture is the best commentary on scripture. Scripture is the best commentary on scripture. In other words, the Bible is its own best interpreter. I interpret scripture by looking at other scripture to see what other scripture says to make sure that my interpretation is consistent with what God has said in his word. So context is a key. Or as someone has said, a text without a context is a pretext. You need a context for the text. The scripture has unity. It's not random thoughts thrown together and just grab a thought here and a thought there and throw them all together and mix them up. That's what you call vegetable soup. But scripture has a design. It has a unity to it. It has a flow to it. It has a pattern to it. The analogy of faith means that God has given us a revelation of himself in such a way that we can see the picture and understand it. That's why you hear a testimony from somebody that walks into a hotel room and they sit down and they begin to read a Gideon Bible that's by this time in 2009 has been stuck in the drawer instead of sitting out on the table. But they can read and open up to the Gospel of John and begin reading. In fact, one of the things you can do with somebody that doubts whether God is the only way to salvation is ask them to read through the Gospel of John. Just read through it. Why? Because in the context, God says over and over, Jesus says, I am this, I am this. And John ends that book by saying, these things have been written that you may know. There are many more stories he could have told, he says. But there there wouldn't be enough ink or enough paper, but God gave us enough of himself to reveal himself to us. And in the context of the culture in which he lived, Jesus Christ revealed himself as the fulfillment of everything God had said in the old Testament. He was fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of the covenant. He brought in a new covenant. All those things are in the scripture. So let me give you some warnings when you talk about scripture being the best commentary on scripture. And there are five. Number one, give attention to grammar. And what you may be saying is, I are from the South. I ain't got no grammar. (laughs) Try to get a little. Pay attention to the grammar. The tense of the verbs is important. The structures of the sentences are important. It's not a, a casual reading. The words are related to one another. They have meaning in their context. You give attention to the grammar. Secondly, obscure passages must give way to clear passages. Obscure passages must give way to clear passages. In other words, essential truth is not tucked away in some isolated verse that you happen to open up to at 3 o'clock in the morning because you couldn't sleep. Essential truth for life and living is not obscure. It's right there. It's front page news. It's there for you to see. It's not in fine print that only a Greek scholar can find. It's not hidden so that you can't figure it out. It's not ambiguous. They have to give way to clear passages. You don't build a doctrine on isolated verses or isolated text. 
That's why we have so many denominations today. That's why we have so many factions today because somebody goes and reads the Bible through their isolated verses. They pull a verse out of this book, this book, this book, this book, and this book, and they say, see, that's what the Bible teaches. And they never look at it in the context of what is being said. And so you don't pull isolated verses. That's, that, that's the old hunt and peck method of Bible study. You start opening the Bible and you say, Lord, speak to me today. And you open it up and it says, Judas went and hanged himself. So, hmm, maybe I don't want to go do that. And so you open it up to another page and it says, go thou and do likewise. And you say, well, that's not good. I don't feel good about that. I want to see if God's going to speak to me again. And you turn it the third time and it says, and what thou doest do quickly. <laughs> you, you don't build a doctrine on Things that are not re-emphasized in the New Testament. So you don't take isolated text and build your theology. You build your theology on the broad spectrum. For instance, let me just give you a verse. You're in Hebrews. Just turn back uh, a few pages to a third John, third, the third little epistle of John, just before you get to the book of Revelation, the, the third letter that John wrote. There has been a whole theology and a lot of preachers making a lot of money off of this verse. They built a whole thought pattern around this verse. Third John, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. That was a simple greeting That was John saying, man, God bless you. I hope God blesses you the way he's blessed me. That was a greeting. That's not a theology. That's not a doctrine. He's just saying, I pray that God will bless you just like he's blessed me. That's a word of encouragement. It's not a theology on which to build your life. Now, that's something you ought to pray for your kids. That's something you ought to pray for your family. That's something you ought to pray for your friends. But don't build a theology on it and say, well, if you're not prospering, God must not be working in your life. Boy, I tell you what, that theology is in a lot of trouble in our economy today. Because a lot of good, godly people have lost a lot of money. <laughs> but God's still good. And He's still in charge. And the greatest bailout we'll get is when we leave this world. (laughs) Number three, don't interpret or teach a verse out of context. Don't interpret or teach a verse out of context. Now, just let me ask you to write by there Matthew chapter 10. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, here's another place where people can take Scripture out of context. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told the disciples to go and cast out demons. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus told the disciples. He didn't tell the TV evangelist. He didn't tell me. And he didn't tell you. He told the disciples to go and cast out demons. Now, do we have authority? Is the one greater in us than he that is in the world? Yes. Does the Bible say, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you? Yes, it says that. But there there are people that see a demon under every rock. I'm not feeling good today. Devil must be after me. Well, probably because you didn't go to sleep until 2 o'clock yesterday morning. 
That may be it. You, you don't look at a demon under every rock and you don't think you've got a right to go out and cast out demons. By the way, when you're dealing with a demonic, you better know what you're dealing with. In 35 years of ministry, I've dealt with it one time and it was the most sobering experience I've ever had in my ministry and I can trust you, I don't want to have it again. Now, if you're going to say, well, we're supposed to be casting out demons and there are people running all over this country saying, you know, we're supposed to cast out demons, we're supposed to cast out demons. Then, if you're going to do that, you better do the next thing Jesus said. And Jesus said, avoid the Gentiles and Samaritans when you're going. So you better not talk to anybody in this room because we're all Gentiles. <laughs> Jesus had a specific command at a specific time for a specific group of disciples. And he said, you go and cast out demons. Why? It was a sign to Israel that the Holy Spirit was coming and that Messiah had come. It was one of the fulfillments that God was coming and that God had come. And so he's going as a sign, miracles drawing people's attention. We don't have to have that anymore to draw people's attention because Jesus Christ is all sufficient. And so if you're going to do that, you got to take the next verse, which means get off television and quit preaching to anybody that's a Gentile. There's a third thing that you have to stop doing. And that is the preachers who preach that need to quit making any money. Because Jesus said in the same orders and in the same marching orders and commands, Jesus said to them, don't take any silver or gold with you. You depend on God's people. You just go. Now, Do we want to follow all the word of God or we want to take it in context? <laughs> Jesus said, don't take anything with you. You don't need any gold. You don't need any silver. Well, maybe as long as I got my American Express card, I'll be okay. You see, there are three things in that passage and people can focus on just one of them and miss what God was saying. It was an instruction to the disciples that as believers, we do not have to be fearful of what the devil does. That's the lesson for us. Number four, don't superimpose Western culture on the Bible. Don't superimpose Western culture on the Bible. I've got a great book in my library called A Western Jesus. I think the author's name is Mike Minter, M-I-N-T-E-R. It's a great book because it talks about how in the American church has Americanized Jesus Christ. And, and most of the Eastern world would not recognize the Christ that we preach in, in America because Jesus was raised in an Eastern culture. He's not a Western Jesus. He doesn't do the things like we do in Western culture. There's a different kind of thinking that goes on in the Eastern culture. And you don't superimpose Western culture on the Bible, which is, by the way, one of the dangers of us mixing God and country. And I'm all for God and country. I wave the flag. I support our troops. I believe that America ought to be a strong nation. But listen, if you think God can bless a country that's killed 40 million babies and has the junk and the drugs and the stuff that are going on in this culture, if you think God's going to say, well, bless their hearts, they're such sweet people. They sing God bless America at baseball games. Let's just pour out blessings on them. I think we're really headed for judgment 
because we've gotten away from the things that we founded this country on. In fact, the founding fathers would not recognize the current Congress because they have taken authority away from the people. So you don't impose a Western culture on the Bible. Number five, you learn the difference between literary forms. There's a difference, as you learned growing up in school, between prose and poetry, between allegory and metaphors and history and hymns and law and narratives. That's why you don't interpret Acts like it's the epistles. Remember, you don't learn from the experiences of the apostles. You learn from the teachings of the apostles. So you interpret Acts differently than you do, say, the book of Ephesians because Acts is a transitional book. It's a history book. It's not a doctrine. In fact, John Phillips made one of the greatest statements about the book of Acts when he said, you never build doctrine and theology out of Acts. It is a missional evangelistic book It is not a theology book. It gives us the command and the examples of going and reaching the world for Christ and the extent to which the church did that. So we interpret the Gospels and Acts in light of the epistles. For instance, I interpret the Gospels, and I should interpret the Gospels in light of the epistles because outside of the Gospels, there's very little about foot washing really basically no references outside the Gospels and Acts to foot washing. Why is that? Because the the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, never felt like that was the key message of the Gospel. Now, we got whole denominations that are built around foot washing. You know, you got foot washing Baptists. We need some ear washing people. Maybe you need some face washing people and some, you know, I, I don't know. Hair washing people, maybe we can start a hair washing church. You don't build it on the non-essentials. You build it on the essentials. And so you always interpret in light of what the teachings of the apostles were, Paul and Peter and John and Jude. You teach it on there because that's what the early church looked to and said, this is the instruction for God for how churches should operate. One last thing you got to read it. You have to read it and study it. And to read it, you, you got to read it before you can study it. You, you just got to read it. As I said in a previous message, if you read four chapters a day, you could read the Bible through in 10 months. Now look at it this way, guys, because I know guys especially, we're not readers. You know, my wife tells me what's in the news. Well, don't be that dumb. Guys, listen, it takes you less time to read four chapters in the Bible than it does for you to read the sports section. It takes you less time for you to read four chapters in the Bible than it does for you to read five pages in Fortune 500 magazine or any other magazine. It doesn't take that long, but it lasts and all the rest of that stuff doesn't. Learn to read the Bible. Find a translation that you can read. If you don't understand King James, don't sit there and say, well, my mama gave me this Bible and she's got all her notes in it. Get you a Bible that you can understand and read it so that it begins to make sense to you.
Now, what's all this got to do with anything? It has to do with this. God revealed himself, and he wrote a book about his revelation. And in that book, he tells us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every prophecy of the Old Testament, that he came to die for our sins, and that when people turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as their only Savior and their only hope of salvation, that they are saved, that they are transformed from death to life, from darkness to light. They are transformed from headed toward hell to headed toward heaven. It is a life-changing book. That's why you ought to read it. And that's why you ought to believe what it says. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.